I'm not sure when I read Bonhoeffer's Ethics for the first time. If I remember rightly, it would have been 2003 or 2004, but it might have been earlier. The The first edition of the book I owned was published by Touchstone, uh, Simon & Schuster Company, I think. Yes, Simon & Schuster. And if you're the next time you're at my house, you can pick it up and thumb through it and see that pretty much every page of the book, of that edition of the book, is marked. And in marked... Some in pencil, some in blue ink, some in Sharpie, some in red ink. And is a sign that I, I did, in fact, go back to this book again and again and again. I, I, and I continue to. The edition I'll be using for these reflections is volume six in the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Works, published by Fortress Press. But And, th and that, that edition is marked up now as well. I... I want to say right up front that this, these reflections will not be a study, though, of Bonhoeffer's theology, or even of his ethics in particular. I, I'm, I'm interested in Bonhoeffer's theology, and I, I think this book is one of the most important books that he wrote and that Christian theologian has written in the last, in the last few generations. But I want instead to engage in dialogue with Bonifer and let him teach us about what it means to be people of Advent. So it's it's less a kind of scholarly study of Bonifer's life and theology and more a kind of pastoral reflection on what Bonifer has to teach us about what it means to be people of expectation, what it means to be people who, who know to be patient with God and to be patient as God is patient. So I, I don't want to spend a lot of time prefacing remarks. I will say some about his life. I will engage others of his works along the way, but there's no kind of systematic presentation here. It, it, it will be, again, off the cuff and unguarded reflections on Advent letting Bonifer be our teacher, our, our guide. So I, I thought a place to begin would, would be his sermons. I mean, Robert Jensen taught me that the proof of theology is in the preaching. And so what I'd like to do before we turn to ethics is let Bonifer the preacher direct our attention to to Jesus. And that and that is what I think makes Bonhoeffer Bonhoeffer is that he is in love with Jesus and Jesus the crucified Jew, Jesus the 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 teacher of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think we have a pretty good sense. I, I agree here with with Charles Marsh and others. We have a pretty good sense Reggie Williams, for instance. These are works I'll, I'll reference from Bonhoeffer scholars along the way of when it is that Bonhoeffer comes to fall in love with Jesus. And it's actually during his time in 1930, during his time in the States, and even more particularly in his travels. So when he leaves New York City, he's come to study at Union. He leaves with a few friends and then they, they drive south and then west to Mexico. And it's sometime during that trip, it seems, that he, the trip to Mexico and back, and on the road back, they, they come through New Orleans and then into the Jim Crow South. And it's there that he says, somewhere in the Jim Crow South, Georgia, Alabama, somewhere, maybe Tennessee, south of Knoxville and east of New Orleans, Charles Marsh says, that he, he finally hears the gospel preached in America. And he hadn't up to that point. Earlier in his time, he told a friend after hearing sermons in New York City and reading reports in the newspaper about sermons around the city and, and around the United States, that people in New York preach about everything but Jesus. And so somewhere in this time of his life, 1930, 1931, 
Bonhoeffer seems to have fallen in love with Jesus. But again, not Jesus in abstraction, but specifically Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, Jesus the Jew, and the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus who gives us the Sermon on the Mount, which of course you can see in Cost of Discipleship and of and in Ethics as well. So this sermon that we're about to hear, or that I'm about to speak about, and I'll read parts of it, was given in 1934. We don't know exactly when, but probably late spring or early summer in 1934, while Bonifer is in London. He's pastoring, well, in his time there, he's pastoring two small Lutheran congregations, and he's speaking in English. He writes these sermons in English, and because even though these are German Lutheran congregations, many of them do not speak German well, and so he preaches to them in, in English. Many of the younger parishioners in particular were not fluent in German. And for this sermon that I'm going to start with, he takes as his text 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. This is God's word to Paul, obviously. So Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Bonifer begins the sermon, and, and this is typical of the way that, that he wrote and preached, and I'm sure of the way that he talked as well. He begins with what I'm sure some people in the audience thought was an unnecessarily philosophical question. What is the meaning of weakness in this world? He asks. But he almost immediately shatters the illusion that this is a merely academic question. He insists that our whole attitude toward life, toward humanity and God, depends on the answer to this problem. And, and then he holds up for their attention ugly specifics of the brokenness, the shatteredness of the world. Poverty, disease, disability, racism, bigotry, self-delusions. And it, it might be tempting, if, if you didn't know Bonifer's life and you didn't know his work, it might be tempting to dismiss this as, as overwrought and over, overworked. But he had, I mean, even though he's a, he's a young man at this point, still, still quite a young man, although he had already written two doctorates by the time he was 23, he, he's had his trip to Italy. He's lived in the States. He's traveled the States. He's spent time in the Bethel care clinics in Germany. He's living and pastoring in London. He, he's, he knows something of the world and is not only highly educated, but is, is a, at this point in his life already truly prophetically insightful about what is happening around him and the ways in which the gospel speaks to that and yet is, is so often ignored. So let me, let me read just a bit from the sermon manuscript itself. This, this is Bonifer again preaching in London, 1934. Have you ever seen a greater mystery in this world than poor people, ill people, insane people, People who cannot help themselves, but who have to rely on other people for help, for love, for care. Have you ever thought what outlook on life a cripple, a hopelessly ill person, a socially exploited person, a colored person in a white country, an untouchable may have? Again, just interrupt to say, he's deeply marked by his experience in the Jim Crow South. Look at Reggie Williams' book, Bonifer's Black Jesus, or Charles Marsh's book, Strange Glory. There's a place to start with the ways in which Bonifer is marked by his experience of racism in the U.S., which he tells his brother is is even worse than the problems he's seen in Germany. And if so, did you not feel that here, here being in this place of exclusion and marginalization and oppression, here, life means something totally different from what it means to you. And on the other hand, you are inseparably bound together with such unfortunate people. Now, it's important to remember Bonifer's audience 
is it's it, they're they're living at least in an affluent part of of London. So these these are people who they're immigrants, I'm sure, largely, but nonetheless, they they, they would have thought of themselves as well in American terms, blessed, and we would certainly think of them as privileged, at least in many ways. So he says to them, "Do you see that these?" poor, ill, insane, hopelessly ill, socially exploited people, that they experience life radically differently than you do. And on the other hand, you are inseparably bound together with them, right? So he's talking of his own experience here. I mean, Bonifer comes from a wealthy family. He has, his family has had the, had the, the money to send him on travels all over the world. He's, he's highly educated, as I said. He's a trained musician. He's a sophisticated fellow, to say the least, and a cosmopolitan fellow. And so he he's learned, he's had to learn the ways in which that privilege leaves him with the illusion that his life is safe from all that trouble. But somehow he has come to terms with the fact that his priv- his privileged life has him out of touch with reality as Christ has claimed it. So he goes on, you are human like them. Just because you are not weak but strong, and just because in all your strength you feel their weakness. Have we not felt that we shall never be happy in our life as long as this world of weakness from which we are perhaps spared, but who knows for how long, is foreign and strange and far removed from us? as long as we keep away from it consciously or subconsciously. So he's simply naming for them the the problem of privilege, the ways in which the the affluence of their lives secures them against reality and how their strength, and here he's thinking about economic strength, cultural strength, sociopolitical strength, how that protects them from the experience of weakness that is the experience of Christ. So toward the end of the sermon, which is not terribly long, some some of the sermons are, are much longer than others, Bonifer moves from talking about those miseries, the miseries of the weak, by which he, he simply seems to mean all, all of those people for whom life does not work, or at least does not work as we would want it to work for us. He says... We need to think about the misery of God. We suffer, he says. God suffers much more. Our God is a suffering God. Our God is a suffering God. Now, you'll see as we work over these next few weeks in in his ethics and, and other works, what he does and doesn't mean by that. But for now, I think we should sit with it. Bonifer is saying our God is a suffering God. And then he says something which may, it's no less troubling. Suffering conforms humanity to God. The suffering person is in the likeness of God. And then he refers back to his text. My strength is made perfect in weakness, says God. Wherever one of us, in physical or social or moral or religious weakness, and notice how he's aware that weakness can be heard in different ways, and he wants to show them the ways in which he means it, uh, all, all the ways in which he means it. Who, wh- Wherever one of us in physical or social or moral or religious weakness is aware of our existence and likeness to God, there we are sharing God's life. There we feel God being with us. There we are open for God's strength, that is God's grace, God's love, God's comfort, which passeth all understanding and all human values. God is glorified in the weak, as God in Christ was glorified on the cross. God is mighty, where humanity is nothing. God is mighty, where humanity is nothing. And notice, there's so much I want to draw attention to, but just for now, notice the ways in which he identifies a particular place, a location, a space in which God's being flows into us. We have to be there in order for our 
in order to be open to God's strength, God's grace, God's love. And the there is the there the weak know because of their weakness. That that place we have to be, we might say the secret place of the Most High, is the brokenness of the world or the brokenness of our lives. It's the secret place of the Most High is the place, the gaps in the world where we're, the, the alleyways, uh, the, the, the hospital beds, the prison cells, the, the places where those of us who are privileged, those of us who are blessed, quote unquote, where we avoid, the, the places we walk around or, or try to, to stay as far away from as we can, those are the places, Bonifer says, and and I I think it's important here. Just let me let me add. This is when we talk about places here. We I, I mean it, and I think he means it, geographically as well as spiritually and psychologically. It, it experientially, like th- it is true, as Willie Jennings has shown us that that racism is inseparably bound up with, and all the oppression that is entailed in racism, it it leaves its mark on the land on the 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 ordering of our streets on on housing and so i i don't think we should think of place and space here as merely metaphorical that that would that would be a serious misreading there there are again remember the ways in which he starts the sermon by directing them specifically to the experiences of the poor the ill the insane the cripple and so on, the socially exploited. But it is also true that those geographical spaces reflect experiential and spiritual places. And that there, there is where God's life can be found because that's where Christ has made God known. So as, as I said already, it's it would be easy to dismiss some of this as exaggerated or, or overwrought. I mean, when he says things like, our God is a suffering God. Suffering conforms humanity to God. God is mighty where humanity is nothing. And it, it is true about Bonhoeffer that his, his preacherly style and almost aphoristic style and writing can, can make it His passages can be, they're, they're exploitable, right? I think you can see that, those of you who know Bonhoeffer's work, where he talks about religionless Christianity, for example, that, or or the suffering God. I mean, there there are these turns of phrase, these concepts or formulas, formulae in in Bonifer that can be taken up, taken out of the context of his work and put to different use. And that certainly has been done to him. But if we pay attention, we'll realize that he he's speaking from from a place of witness. He's been there, that place that he says is the place, the secret place of the Most High, the place where Christ abides with the weak. And he knows that he is not yet weak, that he is strong, that he is in a place of power and a place of privilege, and that for him to go to that place of weakness is is to be away from home, to be out of joint, to be, in, in the cliched phrase, out of his comfort zone. So that kind of awareness, which I think is crucial for him, has also made it possible for him to see the ways in which the others around him have succumbed to what he calls the worship of power. And and again, this is 1934. This is already he's seeing the rise of Nazism. That's one of the reasons he's in London. And... And yet, of course, it's going to get much worse before it gets better for him and and for everyone else, too. And throughout the final years of his life, Bonhoeffer speaks out against this fanaticism and the fetishization fetishization of strength. And, of course, he dies in ways that, that are true to what he's preaching here in this sermon all these years before. Now, again... To be clear, Bonhoeffer is not praising failure or vulnerability as such. He's not talking in generalities. 
he's not fetishizing weakness as over against fetishizing strength. He he does he's not speaking in abstractions, and this becomes a major theme in ethics that the will of God is concrete. So he's studiously avoiding abstraction. And he avoids that abstraction by speaking specifically about Jesus's weakness. If weakness is holy, as he says it is in this sermon, that is only because Jesus, the Holy One, has become weak to rescue us from what we've imagined as strength. And if we are supposed to stand with the weak, as he says we are supposed to in this sermon, it's not because they are weak, but because they are Christ's, and Christ is weak for their sake and for ours. So for Bonhoeffer, weakness is not an ideological category, essentially. And Christian solidarity with the weak is not, not a matter of political strategy. He, he means these doxologically, theologically, in the fullest sense. Weakness is a doxological category. And, and our alignment with the poor, our alignment with the weak, our alignment with the socially exploited is, is not charitable or philanthropic. It's intercessory. It, it, is, it is an act of prayer, embodied prayer. It's not enough. It, let me unpack that statement. It, it's not enough to simply take the side of the weak ideologically. It's not enough to take the side of the weak politically. We spiritually have to enter into the weakness of God. We, we have to, through prayer, and specifically the prayer of the Psalms, enter into that weakness so that our guts are consumed with compassion. And only then are the other acts, the political acts, the, the acts of advocacy, the, the, the acts of prophetic speech and challenge, all of that has meaning only insofar as it's charged by praise and intercession. So let, let me move from, from that sermon to another one, which is preached in 1939 on Remembrance Sunday in Germany. And this is preached on, on a little farm to just apparently just a small group, a small band of, of fellow believers. So this is, this is about five years later, a little more than five years later. And on, in this sermon, he takes us his text, 1 Corinthians 15, 55. And this, this, is, this will lead us right to ethics, the passage that I want to engage with you. So he is lost my place here. Okay, here we are. <clears throat> so this is, uh, yeah, so Remembrance Sunday, 1939. He, his text is 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? And he, and he again, he starts with this, this kind of startling admission that, I mean, he starts with lines from Luther's hymn, Mighty Fortress of Our God, but the then comes right to this admission that Christ's victory seems to stand in question. Like if if Christ has in, indeed risen from the dead, if if sin and death have really been overcome, then why don't we see it? Like why why is the world what it is? Again, you shouldn't hear this as some kind of uh, hipster quip or uh, a. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a, a non-snarky way of talking about naive criticisms of the world as it is. This, this is not Bonifer, even though, again, he's still a young man. This is not Bonifer um, emoting. This is not a mood. This is not a mood. Let me say it like that. Remember, I mean, this... The confessing church is kind of already showing its weaknesses. And it's 1939. I mean, the die is cast for his life and for the life of, of so many around him, including those people in that room that day. 
And so when he says we don't see much of much of the world, we don't see much of God's victory in the world. There's there's weight to what he's saying. And then and then he says this, and this this is so psychologically insightful. I mean, it's stunning to me. I, th- I think how honest he is, but also again how insightful he is in that honesty. So there there's no just as there's no kind of moody brooding over the world not being what he wants it to be. There's also no kind of mere, con- merely confessional honesty. This, this is truthfulness. Right? This is what he says. We do not like to speak of victories in our lives. And remember, by the way, this is Remembrance Sunday. This is essentially the, uh, the day in which Germans are honoring the, the dead from World War I, the, the dead soldiers. And it, it's in that context that Bonhoeffer's preaching this. We do not like to speak of victories in our lives. It is too large a word for us. It is too large a word for us. We have suffered too many defeats in our lives. Too many hours of weakness and too many crude sins have reduced victory to nothing. But isn't it true? The spirit within us longs for this word, yearns for the final victory over sin, over the anxious fear of death in our lives. And now God's word does not speak to us about our victory. It does not promise us that from now on we will be victorious over sin and death. It does say, with all power, however, that someone has won this victory, and that this one will also win the victory over us when we have him as our Lord. And this this is one of the notions you're going to see again and again and again in the study, that Boniface sees Christ as victorious, not for us, but first and foremost over us, it is not we who are victorious, he says, but Jesus. It is not we who are victorious, but Jesus. Today, we proclaim and believe this against everything that we see around us, against the graves of our loved ones, against the dying nature outdoors. Remember, this is a, a farm in winter. Against the death that the war casts over us once again. We see the reign of death but we preach and believe in the victory of Jesus Christ over death. We see the reign of death, but we preach and believe the victory of Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. Jesus is victor, which is a, a reference to the Bloomharts and their story, which, which he references later in the sermon. So these two sermons kind of bring us face to face with a kind of paradox. And I wanted to start with them because I think you see this kind of thinking all the way through ethics and everything Bonifer does. In the first sermon, he's stressing the ways in which God is glorified in the weak and reminding us, not allowing us to forget that Jesus is the weak one and that the church's responsibility is to be weak with the weak, weak with God's own weakness. Here, he's stressing the victory of Jesus over death and over sin. I think in order to grasp what Bonhoeffer is going to argue and what Bonhoeffer is going to say to us about the Christian life and about Advent, we have to understand that in, in, for him, these statements belong together. It is because Jesus is victor that our God suffers. It is because Jesus is victor that we suffer with God. It is because Jesus has triumphed over sin and death that we are able to enter into the weakness of God. So that that brings us to ethics. So in in ethics, and I I think this was the first, and this is why why I want to go to it now, I think this was the first kind of lightning bolt that struck me when I read ethics the first time. And I, I, I was struck many times. But I think I think the first one, the one that, that really knocked me down, was that he relates two sayings of Jesus to each other and insists that they that they're mutually illuminating. So one is Mark 940. Whoever is not against us is for us. And the other is Matthew 12.30. Whoever is not for me is against me. So, again, sayings that on, on the face of it, 
on, on their face seem to be at odds. He insists are in fact one. Whoever is not against us is for us. Matthew, uh, Mark 9. Whoever is not for me is against me. Matthew 12. And this is what Bonifer says about it. So this is page, let me find it here. 342 and 343. Both sayings, actually this is 344, so the section starts on 342, but I'm going to pick up on page 344. Both sayings necessarily belong together. One as the exclusive claim and the other as the all-encompassing claim of Jesus Christ. The more exclusive, the more free and open. Isolated from each other, however, the exclusive claim leads to fanaticism and sectarianism, the all-encompassing claim to the secularization and capitulation of the church. The more exclusively we recognize and confess Christ as our Lord, the more will be disclosed to us the breadth of Christ's lordship. I think about what he's claiming here, right? That we can only understand what it means for him to be Lord of all if we understand how narrow the way is into the life he calls us to live. It's a life that is intended for all. It's a life that will include all, but it is a life that can only be entered through the cross. It can only be entered on uh, through death. And, and as, as again, as he says, the more exclusive, the more free and open. So you've got a kind of exclusive claim. Whoever is not for me is against me. And then you've got an all-encompassing claim. Whoever's not against us is for us. And these, he says, have to be held together. And, and that, I think, is, is Bonifer's wisdom. That we have to hold together the glory of weakness and the glory of strength, right? So the glory of of weakness in that we can find God only there. The secret place of the Most High is the place of sorrow, the place, the gaps in the working of the world. And yet, Christ is risen, and Christ is victor over death. And so we sing with joy, and we dance. We, we're caught up in the energy of God's gladness. So we, we, we know all at once the glory of weakness and the glory of strength, the glory of defeat, the glory of victory, the glory of death, and the glory of life. And, and it makes me think of kind of juxtaposition. What, what immediately comes to mind, and I've written it down here, is Psalm 33. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. Bonifer would certainly agree with this, right? A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. But it is also true that the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty warrior who gives victory. Zechariah 3. So if you if you kind of take that way of thinking, that this to me seems, and it's deeply influenced by Bart, of course, and I think deeply influenced by Paul in, in, in the New Testament. But it, it's a and Luther as well. It it's a it's a it's a profound way, it's a way of being aware of how God aligns glories arranges glories. I mean, paradox is, you know, the, the kind of, uh, the bringing alongside of each other of, di of differing glories. That's what a paradox is. And that, that juxtaposition of truths is a way, being able to see that is is only made possible with a certain kind of awareness, right? Uh, an awareness that God's work is is from is always from above and below and behind and beside, right? That that God's work is is all it, it's eternal, which means we can never track. You know, there's that passage in Job where he says, you know, I looked ahead, I didn't see you. I looked behind, I did not see you. I looked to my left, I did not see you. I looked to my right, I didn't see you. But that. That's simply an indication, right? Not that God is not working, but that God's working is is never limited to this to the field of vision, right? To to whatever is in, in front of us, whatever we turn our eye to, 
God's, there's always more to God's work. And so th- thinking paradoxically, right, in, in allowing the world and, and allowing the work of God in the world, seeing it by faith allows you to see these glories arrayed together, not in competition with each other, but, but again, arrayed like an army with banners. And so all that to say, I want to come to the, the moral, I guess that's, that's not the right word. I I think Bonifer would hate that. The, the, the pressure he wants that audience to hear. So in that 1934 sermon in, in London, he tells them, Christianity stands or falls by its revolutionary protest against violence, arbitrariness, and pride of power, and by its apology for the weak. Christianity stands or falls by this, right? Do we protest against violence? Do we resist in every way that we can arbitrariness and pride of power? Do we advocate for the weak? I mean, that that's such a stunning call, right? And in letters and papers in prison, one of the most famous passages in in the letters, he says, speaking of God, God consents to be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. God is weak and powerless in the world, and so you get this this notion again, pushed out of the world. The cross is outside the world in a sense, because it is it's truly in what, what earlier I called the gaps, right? It, it's the place where the world doesn't work. It's where the world is broken down. The, the places that are out of sight and out of mind, right? The, the ways in which those realities in the world that we've blinded ourselves to or that we've walled off so that we don't have to see, that's where the cross is. The cross is there. And God is willing to be, he says, God consents to be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. God is weak and powerless in the world. But Bonhoeffer is, is, again, not simply talking about weakness as such or talking about powerlessness in general or in abstraction. He means specifically the weakness of God seen in Jesus, the one who dies, the corpse of that man Jesus, that Jew Jesus. But he's also insisting that that is the way in which Christ overcomes the world. God, in the, in the language of Paul, God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So God is weak, but God's weakness is strong. And it's stronger than human strength, infinitely stronger. And as Paul says in that passage that I referenced earlier, power is made perfect in weakness. Power is made perfect in weakness. Not, not just God's power. The power God has made, our power, is made perfect in weakness. And there, Johann Baptist Metz has this wonderful line in which he says, talking about the temptations, it, that the devil fears only the powerlessness of God. Yes, that's true. But the devil does fear the powerlessness of God because the powerlessness of God is infinitely powerful. Not powerful on our terms, not powerful in the way that makes the world work, but powerful in, the, in what brings about creation and new creation, brings about sanctification and glorification. So the devil is right to fear that power, powerlessness. God's violence, and, and this is something that I return to all the time, God's violence does not violate. So God, there is a, a kind of forcefulness to what God does, but it, it never violates. It makes alive. And in the same way, God's weakness does not weaken. It empowers. And God's suffering is not something for which we pity God, it is the way in which God's mercy breaks on us, right? As, as Robert Jensen says, God does not suffer the fact that he suffers. Nothing happens to God. So when God submits to let something happen to him, when God yields to an experience, it's the experience that's changed, right? It's, it's that that is happening to him that receives the happening of God. So back to that Zechariah 3 passage that I mentioned before, God is, is the warrior, right? That the Lord, your God, is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. In the rest of that passage, the prophet says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with song. So gladness, love, and song. This is what his strength 
looks like, but it is indeed truly strong. Mary, in her in in her song, sings of God as the mighty one, the mighty one, and 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 we can't lose that. I mean, there's so many of us, I think, and especially if we've been raised in circles that are deeply nationalistic and militaristic, it's easy to kind of react against that into into simply anti-nationalism and and we can fall in love with with abstractions like powerlessness or weakness and talk about god in ways that that sound superficially biblical or superficially bonafarian but notice that bonafer's not here glorying in weakness full stop he's glorying in the weakness in which christ abides so that the weakness of God, which is stronger than human strength, can bring about the resurrection life that God purposes for us and for all. This is what, again, uh, I want to come back to the ethics. Earlier on, this is on page 90, and I'm almost done for this reflection. Listen Listen to the ways in which Bonifer kind of insists that it's the weakness of Jesus that matters and it's a weakness that brings about the victory of God, right? It's not a weakness for its own sake and it's not weakness as such. In this particular passage that I'm about to read, he's talking not about strength and weakness, but about success and failure, but you'll see, you'll see how, how they relate. The form, this is on page 90, middle of the page, the form of the crucified disarms all thinking aimed at success, for it is a denial of judgment. Success is a denial of judgment. Neither the triumph of the successful nor bitter hatred of the successful by those who fail can finally cope with the world. Right. So notice, he, and he's not looking for some middle way here or some third way. So don't, don't, mis, don't misunderstand it. He is saying, however, that Success doesn't matter, but neither does failure, and neither does resentment for those who are successful. Jesus is certainly no advocate for the successful in history. And man, well, you don't need me to underscore that point. You, you, you can hear it. Jesus is certainly no advocate for the successful in history, but neither does he lead the revolt of the failures against the successful. His concern is neither success nor failure, but willing acceptance of the judgment of God. Only in judgment is there reconciliation with God and among human beings. Christ sets the human person judged by God, the successful and the unsuccessful, over against all thinking that revolves around success or failure. Craig Keene has a wonderful reflection in which he says it's a mistake to talk about love winning because winning and losing belong together. And what God is doing is something that is neither winning nor losing. God does not win. God does not lose. God triumphs over winning and losing. And and that's exactly the point that Bonifer is making here. God is not a success. God is not a failure. God is victor over all that we've made of success and failure. The very structures in, in Bonifer doesn't engage him here, but if you read Anselm's book on the incarnation, or not on the incarnation, but why why God became man, and he's he's talking specifically about why Jesus dies and what is accomplished in Jesus' death. He's not saying, Anselm is not saying that Jesus dies to pay back a debt. It's not that Jesus' debt, Jesus' death kind of saves us from prison because God pays in Jesus' death the debt we owed to the one who had imprisoned us. That's that's not at all what's happening. In fact, that would be deeply unjust, right? What God does in Jesus, we might say, and I think this is Anselmian atonement theology, is that God in Jesus' death shatters the economy. So he doesn't pay the devil back. He shatters the economy in which that debt had accumulated, right? There's no ransom paid. The very 
the, the money itself is worthless because the economy has been shattered by the resurrection of Jesus and by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think that's what's being said here. Over against the successful, God sanctifies pain, lowliness, failure, poverty, loneliness, and despair in the cross of Christ. Not that all this has value in itself. It is made holy by the love of God who takes it all and bears it as judgment. God is judged and is the judge. The yes of God to the cross is judgment on the successful. But the unsuccessful must realize that it is not their lack of success, not their place as pariahs as such, that lets them stand before God, but only their acceptance of the judgment of divine love. It is a mystery of God's reign over the world that this very cross, the sign of Christ's failure in the world, can in turn lead to historical success. But this cannot be made into a rule, though in the suffering of God's church community it repeats itself here and there. Only in the cross of Christ, and that means as judged, does humanity take on its true form. Only in the cross of Christ does humanity take on its true form. So you can see the ways in which all of this is held together in Bonhoeffer's teaching. And, and I think that's what, what we need to learn to look for in Advent. And so let me say this as I, as I wrap up. I think there's a way of, of thinking of Advent in which you're, you're waiting for God to come and deliver you from weakness, deliver you from failure, deliver you from suffering. You're, there's a way of thinking of Advent as waiting on the successes God is going to bring about. And as Bonifer himself says, sometimes success happens in the church because of the church. So this is no kind of sophomoric, moody anarchism right there's this is not champagne socialism this is this is not you know hipster spirituality Bonifer is insisting that yes there are times in which the good wins so to speak we are successful at points but success and failure just aren't what's at stake for God and strength and weakness in God are something wholly at odds with what we imagine strength and weakness to be. And, and this, this image, which I haven't articulated well, but this image of realizing that God is pushed out of the world onto the cross, when in fact what's happening is where the cross is, is where the real is, right? Back to that sermon all those years before. I mean, th those are some of the last words we have from Bonifer. God consents to being pushed out of the world onto the cross. But years before, more than a decade before, he's preaching to those German Lutherans in London about the ways in which it's only there, in that what I call the secret place of the Most High, that God's grace can be received. So I, I think what you see here with Bonifer is this, what he's teaching us, right? Is that we have to learn to wait for the action of God that's not giving us either success or deliverance from failure. It's not giving us strength or saving us from weakness. It's giving us Jesus. God's work is to give us himself. God's work is to fill us with the Spirit. And to make us like Christ so that the life of Christ happens in us somewhere in ethics. And I, I can't, I won't take time to look it up now, but he says, you know, the, the, the call of the Christian life is not to become like Jesus. We're, we're not, we're not trying to become like Jesus. We're allowing, participating in, rejoicing, consenting to welcoming Christ happening in us, Christ's life formed in us and, and reforming us. And, and, and so he's, he's stressing that, right? What we're waiting for in Advent is Jesus. We're waiting for Christ to be born. In that letter that I mentioned earlier when he says, you know, they preach about everything in New York except Jesus. I think the next line is something like, 
thankfully Christmas is coming. There's an Advent expectation, and it's an expectation not for success, not for strength, not for weakness or failure, or deliverance from weakness or failure, or the overthrow of the strong. What's expected is nothing other than Jesus. And when that becomes our expectation, I think what Bonifer would say to us, I think what he's teaching us is we realize that we're living in an illusion. That the world in which we are inhabited, the world in, out of which God is pushed, is the world we've projected, the world we've imagined for ourselves, the world we've made, our own Eden. But where Christ actually dies, outside the city in the language of Hebrews, outside the gates, is the real and what I want to talk about next time is the ways in which Bonhoeffer talks about the real and responsibility. Christ is the real, and the real can only be grasped in the knowing of Christ. But in, in the being grasped by that knowing, we become responsible for what happens in the world. And so I, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but read let me make sure I've got the page numbers here. But read with that in mind, Christ in the real. So it will be, start on page 47, Christ, reality, and good. So the first chapters, and if you, can, if you, if you have time to read on into the ethics as formation chapter, do that as well. But certainly we'll, we'll pick up with that opening chapter, Christ, reality, and the good. I hope this is, has been helpful. It is... It, it is scattered. I don't know that the other weeks will be any less scattered. But I love this book. I love the vision that he casts. And I think the heart of his witness to us is the heart of Advent. Look for Jesus. Look for Jesus. That's what matters. And, and everything else matters only because he does.